episode 106. This one's been years in the making. Welcome to the Price All Podcast. We have Mike McCandless, modern day renaissance man, founder and <laughs> original founder of Cyvation. Uh, later sold that to Nutribolt, but you've also uh, founded or before that retail chains such as uh, Bulk Nutrition, One Fast 400, which kind of kicked this whole thing off uh, in an email we had. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mike. Uh, you have a lot to talk about, and I think you're kind of, you've been out of the sports nutrition industry and you have some things to say. You've always had a lot of things to say. So welcome. Let's have a good chat about <laughs> what you're up to, what you've been doing and what you might be doing soon. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I mean, I've been in the space for, you know, over 20 years and I've been on all sides of it. Of course, originally as a consumer, then as a business owner, done it as internet retail uh, and have done it as, you know, big business, small business and all things in between. So uh, anybody that's followed me over 20 years knows that uh, I don't lack uh, sharing controversial or very direct opinions. That's a that's a great way to put it. I uh, <laughs> Mike responded to a comment that I put in a podcast that I never thought Mike was ever going to see, which is really funny. I I, I was a, a an avid bodybuilding.com forum user, so actually getting to see Mike face to face is pretty well not face to face, but digitally here it's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I'm excited about this episode. Um, I feel like there's going to be equal parts of like reminiscing, but also like uh, behind the scenes and information. So. Uh Absolutely. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear your, hear your Genesis story and, and talk about business. I think the what we had talked about is that you have some feedback for a lot of people in this industry. You've sold a lot of businesses and a lot of these businesses um, you believe are not built to transact. And by transact, I think you mean like to sell the business. And you've done this a few times. So kind of like to hear like what you've got and everything. Um, and to do so, I think we should we should hear your backstory and everything. Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the origin story for almost anybody that is a supplement company owner or significant in the industry is GNC and or vitamin shop at a later date. Everybody seems to start there, uh, myself included. Uh, while I was in college, you know, had a job there during the summer, got enamored with supplements and science and all of that stuff. And you got to remember, this is body of life heyday. This is like peak body for life. So we're all reading at the, uh, you know, at the foot of Bill Phillips and reading all the books and everything else in muscle media. And, you know, as a supplement consumer, I was sold stuff that um, I later found out as I educated myself was not really a good deal. I was getting the wrong supplements. I got pissed because I was a kid. I didn't have any money, you know, so it was a big deal to waste money uh, when I didn't have it to waste. And so I started at GNC. Um, one of my customers, actually, I was a really good top, like high level GNC salesperson. This is back in heavy commission days. So I was making really good money, especially for a college student. Enough so that between that and gambling, I was actually able to save up enough money to start my first store. Uh, and while working at corporate GNC, ended up at a franchise GNC, which is a totally different experience. And, you know, which is really where a lot of a power sits that's uh, not leveraged the way that it should be by a lot of companies. And so I learned a lot about the backside of the business at that point. You know, I've never taken a business class or any of those types of things. It's all been real world experience, which I think gives me a, a leg up a lot of times in a lot of the rooms, uh, you know, that I sit in. But, you know, graduated college, used the money I saved up, started a retail store, thought, man, if I can do this and you know, make a comfortable living enough to, you know, have 2.3 kids and a dog, you know, I'll be good. 2.3. Yeah, there you go. So um, I started my first internet website in 2002. Uh, and then it took off from there, sold those internet businesses in 06, started Cyvation Prime Force in 04, transacted Cyvation in um, 2017, and had a, you know, 
heck of a growth story along the way. Eventually sold uh, Prima Force last year and started some other companies post Salvation, which I've now since sold those. So I've been on all aspects of it, the good, the bad, you know, everything from us losing ephedra, we, you know, lost pro hormones, you know, go through that, the crazy uh, raw material spikes that have happened that caused lots of things. So yeah, I've, it's weird. I don't feel old, but yet I'm an old man in the industry. <laughs> right. That's what's funny. We were, we were first talking on the phone. I'm only a couple of years younger than you, but man, like you started at an early date and if, it, you know, sometimes timing the market isn't as important as time in the market. And so yeah. you had a lot of time in the market, but also um, you stepped aside, but it seems like you're free and clear to talk sports nutrition again. You have no ownership <laughs> of anything. So now we get to hear the fun stuff. So I guess starting Correct. from the beginning, so your, your two sites, it was BN.com or was it Bulk Nutrition and OneFast400.com? What yeah, was one, so like OneFast400? <laughs> So, right, like everybody in the first internet days, you have to get your name, right? You know, it's got to be whatever your name's going to be. And it's in, it's forever. It's what you have. And I didn't even know bodybuilding.com existed. A customer came in my retail store and he was the bodybuilder of the month. And so he's like, oh, dude, I'm the bodybuilder of the month on bodybuilding.com. And I'm like, I have, I have no idea what that is. So like all of us, when you first discovered bodybuilding, if you were around in the early 2000s, you know, they were taking articles from people and for the old heads like Big Cat and people like that, uh, you know, you would go in and just if you were willing to spend the time, there was an infinite amount of information. This is early Internet days. You're talking 0102. And so obviously I'm a slim frame guy. So going in is 22 inch bicep mic, probably not authentic. So one fast 400 was I ran the 400 meters, uh, you know, both through high school and into college. So, you know, that was that was my name that made sense to me and I didn't think much about it. And when I realized what was going on in the forums, I realized there was an opportunity uh, from a retail standpoint to sell things that bodybuilding.com wouldn't. This is in the early days of pro hormones. And like any business, there's always a ground swelling of super hardcore customers that are early to market on a lot of stuff. So I focused on getting those products and then offering them in a web store. And so if it was not for bodybuilding.com, I would have never existed. And that was something Ben said on episode 99 with Ryan DeLuca. <laughs> well, so, <laughs> and Ryan's, Ryan's a great guy. He's so like kind of introverted and quiet and like super nice. And uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. If not for him, yep, I don't To exist. be fair, you, the mods uh, yeah. there did their best to keep you off at some points too. You got kicked oh, out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you made some great points in that podcast with uh, Ryan and people should go back to listen to some of those parts about, you know, the, what we see today with all the influencers and everything that's going on, there was a, just a different version of that at that time period, whether it was, uh, you know, uh, influencing board reps or having, you know, working your way with moderators and all of that type of stuff. I was blown away at what I got away with, you know, for as long as I did. Um, and, but yeah, hundred percent, if it wasn't for that sort of guerrilla marketing tactic, uh, one fast 400, and then obviously telling somebody a website name and having to go, well, it's the number one, the word fast. And then the number 400, you would think that's every barrier known to man to keep you from being able to be successful. However, at that time, think about how many websites would have started with the number one or, uh, F they didn't need to know the rest of it cause it would auto complete. So in a way, the uniqueness was actually a, a big factor in its success. And so what I did is created a my own product line called Bulk Nutrition, which was the powders. And then that eventually became its own name with its own website that was more, you know, more mainstream. 
uh, and then eventually transacted out of that in 2006. Okay. So is it fair to say, and I've said this a lot, uh, back in those days, you're not going to get any venture capital funding or any type of investment unless it's from your uncle Jim or whatever. You're not going to get much right. investment in this industry. So a lot of the VC funding, I'm putting air quotes in there for the audio fees, a lot of the VC funding was actually like pro-hormone sales and potentially like stimulants that are no longer on the market. It feels like that's where a lot of money was made that eventually brands were forced to clean up and they got their seed funding by selling pro-hormones. Would you agree a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, everybody, it was a short window, right? Everybody knew that we were on uh, a time bomb that was going to explode. It was just a matter of what time it was going to. And so if you go way back with Rick Collins and the guys back then, they had created, and I'm going to screw up the acronym, but it was like the US FTA or something like that, which was a group of us that got together, pulled our funds together and actually lobbied to get extra time to sell pro hormones because we knew what was going to happen. And as an internet retailer, it was huge for me to be able to have a, a sell off period. My fear was, hey, this is done. And then I'm going to be hit first, not the manufacturers. You stop retail, you'll stop the manufacturers by default. Um, and so I spent in those days, it was, I'm wanting to say it was about $75,000 was my contribution to, uh, the U S God, now I'm gonna have to go back and look it up, but to that organization. And there was only, I think like new tracks and a couple other people were a part of it, but we effectively got in this sell-off period. Um, that was huge for me because with 10 days to go in the, in the pro hormone sell-off, I went and bought everybody's inventory. I offered them cash amounts because I knew it would take like two or three days to get to me. And then I actually flipped a lot of that to like DPS Nutrition and some of those people selling it to my competitors because I also needed to, you know, to offload it. And then when the last day came, I took everything and sent it overseas. It was wild times, man. Wild times. <laughs> but that was all legal, right? Yeah, at the time. Yeah, 100%. And it was no different with Ephedra. It was the same way. You had a date that everything had to sort of stop by. And I mean, I remember buying from Nutrax and buying pallets of lipo six, you know, and telling my parents, like I was leveraged as much as I could because I knew I could flip it. And I went to my parents and I said, you know, is there any way I can borrow some extra money? And they're like, well, what for? And you're trying to explain that, you know, to my 60 year old parents at the time, like I'm going to buy, you know, $50,000 worth of pills and I'm going to give you $5,000 profit and I'm going to give it to you in two weeks. And they're like, what? I said, yeah, just trust me because they didn't really understand what I was doing. And so, yeah, it was the same thing. You're just trying to to buy and flip as, as quick as you could. But internet retail then was, you know, totally different than it is, you know, today. My first, um, <clears throat> I'm gonna date myself a little bit, just so you guys talk about age. I'm just gonna be honest here. I, I, I'm only 30. So like I was coming in right as that was happening. <clears throat> and so I had a business trip early on in my sales experience where I got to sit down with SUPS, S-U-P-P-Z.com and talk with Brent about what it was like back in that age when it was just like, they, you were just pulling as many pallets in through the back door and shipping them out as, as much as possible. Like it was just how much you get your hands on, you could sell, which is so fascinating to me in today's day and age where like now you have to worry about like SEO on Amazon. Like, like there's so many like barriers to entry now. Back then it was just like, if you could list it, you could sell it. Something. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Something I want to ask I though mean, is, is Mike asked, this was all legal though. Um, and this is probably a whole different uh, rabbit hole that we could go down. Uh, I, I know that the Designer Steroids Act wasn't passed yet, but speaking like strictly DeShea wise, a lot of these things probably were synthetic, right? Yeah, it was a weird time period because everybody said everything they're selling is legal, right? <laughs> Just ask me. I, yes, I'm selling it. It must be legal. That was sort of the every brand's sort of stance. And it was, I think what happened is everybody knew that there was going to be a time when this was going away. And it was, 
there was no doubt about that because we're talking about a time period that's only 24 months. Like this isn't like, oh, this was done for 10 years and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and you had what Patrick Arnold was going through sort of at the time with, you know, all his stuff. And, you know, he was a pretty prevalent person and you had one AD, which was, uh, you know, literally the gold standard at the time for, you know, for pro hormone stuff. And it just worked unbelievable. I don't think any of us actually thought that, well, there's no way this is going to last. And so I don't think people, I hate to say this, I don't think people worried about the legality because they knew it was going to be a hard stop. You know, this is going to end. And then you had the post pro hormone ban era where stuff with like super and all these things started getting, I, I was really out at that time. So I was, I wasn't in internet retail. So really there's this timeline of sort of the ephedra and the pro hormone ban. And then right after that, uh, I pretty much exited out, not because of that. There were other factors for that. Um, but yeah, that's, I don't believe that there was, yeah, the, the legal part was definitely super gray but everybody knew it was ending. So it was like, and yeah, that's whatever. specifically right. why and you got to remember some of the CFRs that we follow manufacturing, those weren't like written until 2008. There was a lot of, a lot of the legality yeah. stuff hadn't been like fully fleshed out. 1994 was not, you know, between 1994 and 2003, for instance, that much, not that much time. So the wheels of justice, Correct. And, you know, tweaking that stuff takes time. Yeah. And, and, and that's why that? the designer steroid act actually specifically says like it names things, but it also has like a very vague ending where it says like anything that acts like testosterone as well, because they knew, I mean, Patrick Arnold, whoever was going to find some, you know, put like another sure. methyl group on it, <laughs> change it around some way. So it's not the same right. named compound. Well, the rules are written in gray to allow uh, scary enforcement because, you know, at these you always have to have the definition of like, uh, what's your defensible position? That always needs to be your mindset of anything legal because the rules are always going to be written in a, in a gray sort of way. Uh, so, you know, anytime you're doing anything, if you think that you're treading somewhere you shouldn't be, you need to be thinking about those words, you know, defensible position. If somebody comes in, what is your stance? Uh, because likely there's a lot of gray. And so you better have something to stand on that's solid. And usually you can get yourself out of it. I mean, look, man, we had people full blown, and I will still never to this day understand how we had somebody on the front cover of USA Today, uh, you know, doing all types of crazy hormone stuff and all types of other problems. And yet this dude literally never does any prison time or does anything, you know. And yet on another side, a company gets totally railed and people are going to prison you know, left and right over some stimulant stuff. And it's like, I, there's no rhyme or reason on the day that something like that, if it happens to you, you just have to really hope that they're not wanting to make an example of you. Cause if they do, they will because of the gray. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So back to your businesses, um, you had bulk, bulk, bulk nutrition, right? And that was like, you're selling bulk powders. So did you see like, was this a big thing or is it like a lot of just people like us who just wanted to tweak and make their own little pre-workout or whatever? I, I can't imagine it was as big as it is now or like, how was that working yeah. out? And then there was a huge important lesson in there, which was a lot of times companies believe they know what the consumer wants and why they want it. And I think it's the most arrogant thing that you can ever think because you have to test a lot to see what the consumers really want and then adjust accordingly. My thing was simple. It's just that typically products were sold in lower amounts and most meatheads and hardcore consumers and just athletes in general, they will buy the bulk at that time. They would want to buy the bulk to be able to dose out over a long period of time and save their money and all that stuff. What I did not anticipate was the animal community. 
and I don't mean as in animal, the brand, but, uh, meaning that I was selling powders oh. to people that had like a lot of equine stuff and were mega dosing acetyl carnitine. And, you know, I would get these random huge bumps in volume of individual ingredients. I'm like, what in the world's going on? So I, I could reach out to the consumers and I would find out, oh, well, you know, I give this to my animal, but I need to give it obviously at something that's going to a thousand or 2000 pound animal. What do you think the dose is on that? They're not buying it over the counter at 50 grams of material. So I was killing it in the, in the material side of business, which was what allowed my margin basis to work because I could then discount on the third party products. So as a blended basket, I could make it work and, and I could offer the cheapest prices because that powder business was really the, the margin driver for everything. Interesting. I was almost thinking like taurine for your cat food, but you're, you're, you had like big things. So why didn't your, why didn't your business go off in that direction? You, you, as you do stuff in business, you start seeing windows and doors open. Yep. And so that was clearly a door. There was a lot of people getting out. I see a lot of carnitine for the horses. Apparently. Yeah. Why didn't you go in that direction? Eventually you, you formulated extend and made salvation yep. and that's gotta be our next big step. Low binder, all <laughs> yeah. that stuff. Why, yeah. Yeah, why weren't you sticking with what was working there? Well, you know, to be honest, everything was working on some level. And so I was at the point in the online business, my next big step was going to have to be huge. I didn't have an inventory control system. I had 200,000 uh, units of inventory, 4,000 unique SKUs, and it was all in my head. Um, I ordered from Europa on a daily basis, which was out of Charlotte. So I could order at four o'clock and have my inventory the following day. So I was... I was really efficient with cash flow, um, and you know Europa loved me because I was a gigantic customer, and it was worth it to me to have that relationship versus a direct third-party relationship, which would take me much longer. Even though it was at better prices, uh, the cash flow was more you know more important to me with Europa. But you know, as I was doing Cyvation and Primaforce, which Primaforce was nothing more than taking the products that I was already making as best sellers, and then creating you know essentially making a white bottle and then doing labels for both. So, you know, it was an efficiency game, but ultimately I got out of the online business uh, because of a, a terrible lawsuit. Um, I got sued for counterfeiting and uh, I was in Atlanta at the, um, oh God, one of the NPC shows like uh, nationals. And my brother calls me and he goes, uh, you just got raided. There's like 20 people here with weapons. And I'm like, what? And so what had happened is if you remember the old school days of, uh, what was it? Uh, no two, um, M was it MRI? I think was the brand, yeah. uh, Ed bird in that group. So somebody had made counterfeit no two and they were up in Canada and they had sold it to me. I didn't, you know, I didn't know it's, it's one of 4,000 SKUs. You know, I had no idea. And well, it turns out with my luck, I was the only person in the US that had actually bought this from this Canadian distributor. So they go and track and try to, you know, find out where it came from. They eventually buy it from me, realize the tablet's wrong or something. They raid my place, stack of documents this high. I end up, uh, you know, going to depositions and all this stuff. I give them all my information. I had sold $1,700 worth of this stuff on a business that for that year was projected at uh, eight figures. So I'm like, obviously I'm not a counterfeit operation, but it didn't matter because I was violating trademarks. And so I was actually liable up to $3 million on a $1,700 product. And uh, in Canada, the penalty at the time was very small for counterfeiting. And ultimately they came back to me and said, Hey man, uh, we're sorry, but we've spent a fortune in lawyers and you're screwed. So you have to pay us, you know, it was like half a million 
half a million or $600,000, which was everything I had at that point in the business. Mm -hmm. And so I, I paid them and I said, I almost lost everything that I worked for, for something that I didn't do. Mm -hmm. And that was terrifying to me with that many SKUs and all that stuff. And uh, I was at the Seattle show uh, that was out there, an MPC show. And Chris Turner that worked for MRM uh, at the time introduces me to Russ DeLuca, Ryan's dad, who's at a bar. And he goes, hey, you guys should meet. And nobody knows what's going on, that what's just happened with me. And uh, they make a joke and they're like, oh, man, maybe you guys should you know, should join together. And I said, well, I can be talked to. I said, I'm willing to have that discussion. That was said in a room that other people were in. By the time I got home, I was getting offers to buy the websites. And that was in March of 06. And I sold it May 31st of 06, two months later, 60 day time, which was insane, but I was ready to get out and focus on Salvation and Primer Force. So at that point, Salvation and Primer Force had already been funded or uh, found founded. Yes. Yeah. They were founded in 04. And so, you know, maybe it was the end of 03, but we'll just call it 04. So it was during the time of having bulk nutrition and one fast 400. So okay. did you feel like, uh, by creating your own brand, you could control that quality better and you would never be in that position again. Was that a driving force for you? Well, originally it was, you know, if you think back, branch chains were, were in a weird spot because they didn't dissolve and they tasted terrible. Um, most people were taking branch change through like a suppository tablet, like it was gigantic and you had to swallow like 20 of them and nobody was going to do that. And I thought there was an opportunity for it. But honestly, my first product with uh, Salvation was NeuroStem, which was an old school version, like going back before that, NeuroGain from EAS. This is like super old school. Uh, I used it a lot in college and I loved it. And so that was actually the first anchor skew uh, for Salvation. And I just, you know, the, the common sense of it was I have customers that are shopping for a thing. And if I can manufacture it and sell it direct to them, the margins are obviously better over time with enough demand, I can sell it to my competitors. And then that in the long term is, uh, probably a better business model than doing the internet retail. But at that point I had not gone through these, you know, these other things. So it was just, I think it was just common sense really at the time. Okay. So, so the t yeah, take us through Salvation. Obviously, so Salvation <laughs> you had for like 13, 14 years is kind of your biggest baby, I guess you could say. Yep. So I, I we got to hear some of the story. Um, so <laughs> Neurostim was the main thing that you thought was going to be the big thing, but Extend yep. actually is the yes. thing. And Extend is still out there on the market today, um, kind of its own brand now. So so that was obviously where did, when did you realize that this, that branch chains were the thing? How'd you make them? You made them taste good. Like I remember, I remember some stuff, you know, I remember that you also yeah. reformulated and changed some flavors too. So like, I, I just kind of want to hear the salvation story from your, from your perspective. Yeah. yeah, sure. Um, you know, the data on branch chains that was available at the time I thought was interesting. I was dating a fitness competitor at the time who, you know, competed twice a year at the amateur level. She would do the two pro shows a year that existed in fitness and, uh, you know, would get to the same starting weight, cut down to the same competition weight. And when I was curious about branch chains, basically sort of uh, because I had access to all the powders, you know, made up what eventually became Extend and said, here, just, just drink this gallon jug of this stuff, which was the equivalent of five servings of Extend. I said, just drink this throughout the day. And I'm like, follow all your same contest prep and see what happens. Now, especially in those days, a lot of the competitors were heavily underfed. 
um, you know, not really eating enough. And so probably giving any sort of sustenance would have probably led to some results, but in particular with the branch chains, uh, you know, she was three pounds heavier, uh, going into showtime at a lower body fat percentage. So you're probably talking on a 112 pound female, you know, a significant difference. And so that to me was the end of one, you know, holy shit moment. Like, oh wait, this, this stuff really works. But the problem was you had all the white flakies, you know, going around super bitter, obviously. And a lot of that was because of the blending process that was being used. And so without giving away too much, there was, there was a different way to be able to blend the product that allowed our stuff to go into solution better at the time than our competitors. That, and then the glutamine that was being used by us also, we shifted uh, manufacturers for that and got it to be able to dissolve better. But everything was about flavor because everybody knew branch chains taste awful. If you can make them taste good, I knew I could get a consumer to try it at least once because there's a natural curiosity about it. And then it was on the products, you know, it was on the product at that point to keep the consumer from it actually, you know, working for so, the, you know, for the person. So when it comes to like uh, all-star casts, I always feel like Cyvation was one of those brands that was like the origin story for a lot of people. <laughs> I'd love to know how you got this group of people together. I mean, Mark Lobiner, Jim Stepani, like people who, you know, after this whole, still, again, went on to create other things. How did this whole crew to come together? You know, I, the online retail allowed me to meet everybody because I was really secret. People had no clue that I was driving a lot of the Europa volume at the time. And so I would go to trade shows and go up to San or any of these other companies. They would have no clue who I was, which has always been kind of my MO. I've always been more invisible. I'm not a, a Ford out there in front type guy. Uh, but then as people realized, oh, wait, I'm the one driving a lot of this revenue, uh, you know, everybody became my best friend because getting on the front page of the website mattered and, you know, top 10 list and all that stuff that we, you know, that have existed over time. And so, you know, I got networked and people knew I was working on making a brand. And so I knew I could not be the front of it for multiple reasons. Uh, I was not going to be able to get my competitors, including bodybuilding.com to pick it up if they knew I owned it. Uh, Mark at the time was in between, uh, projects and things that he was working on coming off of Instone, And, you know, I just met him through the weeder people, to be honest. And, you know, he's a, he's a super high energy guy. And so I'm like, well, this is what you have to have in a, in a startup. And so he was, he was brought on and, you know, he stayed on the West coast for a couple months, but ultimately, you know, ended up moving to North Carolina. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure how like all the nuts and bolts worked, obviously, but a lot of us saw Mark as the guy at Salvation and everything. Yeah. So uh, eventually there was leaving, but also there was there was a reformulation at some point. I'm like just th trying to think in my mind like where I was living and and as I was following him, <laughs> there was definitely a reformulation that stirred things up really badly. And I wasn't sure if, from my perspective, if you're going to make it, but I think right. you're you're probably fine, but I think you added electrolytes or things I felt maybe like got a little bit thicker, but some of those, you were the first one to make these stuff taste really, really good. And we'll, right. we'll, we'll fast forward to like when you got acquired by Nutribolt uh, and we were talking to DOS and DOS mentioned flavor at least like two or three times. And it kind of stuck in my head. Like obviously we knew extend had the flavors and everything. Um, so you, you did that first. Where, where did that reformulation fit in there? And there's a, a sure. couple of crazy things that happened. Yeah, yeah. Let me help your timeline there. So, you know, Mark um, is one of the hardest. Mark will be working 80 hours a day until he falls over dead. 
Like he has endless energy. He's always been that way. Um, he liked to be far out in front and, and being one with the brand. And ultimately I didn't align with that strategy. I don't believe that there's a high transaction success rate for brands that are named after individual people or are tied to an individual. It just creates too much liability for the future acquirer. And so we just had a big difference of opinion on where the brand needed, uh, needed to go. And so ultimately we agreed to, you know, to part ways and I, I bought him out of the business. And at the same time, uh, Chris Lockwood, a little bit before then, who is with Nutribolt now, at least on a consulting basis, uh, Chris Lockwood is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. If you want to feel like a moron, he's a great person to talk to we'll get him uh, on all things on all things science. I mean, he, he really is great. And he came in because I had a vision for what I eventually wanted, which was a transactable business, but I just didn't know how long that was going to take. And Chris really helped from a quality and compliance perspective. And because while I was trying to do it right, ultimately, uh, I didn't have the full expertise. I was doing things well enough, but not to the level that I actually needed to probably do them to. And so Chris came in, cleaned up everything and wanted to do a reform um, on the flavoring. And so it was either you do one or you do all. And we went across the board and Chris wanted to add uh, electrolytes in it because of the science of it. And I was with the data there, I believed in it. And so we made the very bold move of, you know, taking a category leading product and changing the entire profile. And I think a lot of our consumers would have been happier if I would have went to their homes and like beat up their family members. Like they, the, luckily at that time, social media isn't what it is today. And so it was by direct mail that people would, or email that people would say stuff and it was bad, but I had to make a transition to, to retail brick and mortar retail. And that consumer is not one that has been overloaded with the artificial flavors like the hardcore guys have because back in the day nobody knew how to flavor so they just said here's all the artificial flavor and you know they would you know had be so heavy that the consumer's palate was muted to that much artificial but you take that to somebody who doesn't really drink supplements and it blew their mouth open they're like oh, this is too much so i had to pull back on the amount of flavoring in order to get uh, a bigger adoption more people to to come into the product and that's that's what we did so the, so your plan was you're, at some point, your plan became, I'm going to sell this business. Like, yes. So you're yeah, not 100%. And did you find, did you create it with that idea in mind, or at some point you flipped? No, I, I think I saw a, a reason for the product to exist. I had a vehicle to sell the product. And so I, it's very dangerous to build something with the intention of selling it because then you'll, you'll make a lot of decisions along the way that you think are in the best interest of transacting the company and often aren't. And uh, we'll definitely go into that a little bit later. But so I think if you stick by trying to make a product that was good, that you thought was good for the consumer uh, at a reasonable price, then all the other shit works out. You just, but if you're not guided by those principles and you're only guided by the transaction principles, then those, those first couple of things will start to go away because you're going to, people will have to compromise on something to get to the transaction level. At least they think they do. Um, so I think if you just have the right intentions, try to make the product right and do right by the consumer, 
you will get to a transaction if you do those final the final steps right that are needed to prep a company. Right, but you you changed what the consumer was because you needed to get it into wreath. You needed first off. There's sorry, there's sorry, Mark, but you, there's no like super face of this brand. This is a brand right. that can stand on its own and be sold to almost anyone or whatever. But Correct. your main consumer. Where you had to move away from hardcore people on the internet like me yep. to someone in in retail at the vitamin right. shop who wants to drink, extend, and feel normal. And yeah, okay, hundred percent. So yep. okay, that make that that makes sense. Yeah, and I think so that's the a label's lot of the story all that soft no up. That's a lot of the story that you we haven't heard you tell or like just didn't yeah. couldn't get told at the time or whatever. Um, and it does make sense in retrospect. Yeah, people would love to be able to create like uh, all this huge drama between you know mark and myself and salvation and all those things but really at the end of the day it was a, a big difference of opinion and one of us had to take control and so it was either mark was going to need to pull me out of the business or i was going to need to to pull him out of the business but really we came to an agreement on for what he wanted which for whatever people think about mark he has been consistent and he is wanted to be out front. He's, he's very in your face and that works for him. And he's done great with his ventures, you know, since Salvation. That just wasn't what I believe to be the right path for that brand where I was trying to actually soften up and go more mainstream because that's where the growth opportunity was, at least in my mind. And so at the same time, you know, Mark exits out, the label changes, the, the, uh, reform happens. All this happened at one time and it was just like a rebirth of the brand. And, you know, it actually shut up. And then in 2012, uh, I actually had another partner in the business when I was young and very stupid. Uh, and I had my online business. I thought I would never sell my online business. And I gave my, my uncle a percentage of the company cause he was working with me within the online business. And so I needed to, to get him out of the business as well. And in 2012, we actually went and ran a small process, having no clue what we were doing. And uh, oddly enough, Nutribolt made an offer uh, at that time, which was not one that I accepted, obviously, um, but it put a stake in the ground for what the company was worth. And that made it where I could figure out a way to buy out uh, my uncle out of the business. And so there's like these multiple evolutions of the brand. Uh, which are really important because I think what I went through in 2012 is what a lot of companies will go through the first time they try to go to market when they don't know what this is. So doing. gotcha. When you say go to market, you're talking about try to get sold like transaction. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yes. My uncle and I were at such odds that one of, it was another situation of like one of us, he wasn't working and I'm like, I'm killing myself mm -hmm. for half the brand. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm like, either you go or I go. And uh, there was no, company if I left because I was holding so many of the different positions and, and working in it so hard. Um, and so ultimately we came to an agreement and I, you know, I was able to get him out of the company as well. So you were the CEO, but is that the next step? Like, obviously you, <laughs> you're, if you're doing everything, we can't sell the business, you know? So, yeah. So what's, yeah. CEO is a, uh, a very overused term right. in the sports nutrition space. Um, <laughs> I was always very clear that I was not a CEO. And the easiest way to know that you're not a CEO is when you see a real CEO and you see the difference because it's like saying that the three of us are professional basketball players uh, <laughs> until you get on a court with somebody that actually knows how to play. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, uh, basically I, I needed to go raise money to get my uncle out. I didn't have the cash to be able to, to buy him out. And so I went to a private equity group and they came in and they let me borrow money to 
basically just buy him out. And they said, look, you've got a killer business, but you can't sell this thing. And I'm like, why not? We're awesome. Look at these numbers. And they're like, yeah, that's, you don't have a board. Um, and I'm like, I don't need a board. That sounds dumb. And, uh, you know, started this whole process. They said, look, we'll give you this money, but you're going to have to work with this group who's going to basically mold you over a two-year period into maybe something that can be, you know, be sold. And so the private equity group got a free roll. I was on the hook for them for a loan. Uh, and they took a, a piece of equity for that, which is super common. Um, but this was an all new world to me. I'd never, I'd never been a part of any of that stuff. So what happened is actually, I, I, what I'm picking up from this podcast, which I'm really enjoying, is that uh, there's really nothing new in this industry, which I think is probably what Mike loves to get across. Is like, you know, however many years pass by, uh, this is like a tale as old as, as old as time. Is like someone starts a business because they're they're passionate about it. Uh, but then they realize it's, it's not willing to be, it's not able to be transacted or it's not really profitable or for whatever reason, your product can't really go mainstream. It can't get to the point that it needs to be. And so obviously there, there it sounds like there was a little bit of uh, controversy over whether or not you make that choice. Uh, we see brands all the time that come to us say, I make the best pre-workout in the world. And that's why you should spend $75 on 25 servings of it. Right. And, and, and now you see brands that come in with something economic, something effective, uh, but you know there's 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 less than four grams of beta alanine, and people want to hang them for it. But they're a much more transaction friendly business. Uh, so you make this decision, and these two years go by. Can you tell us some of the things that they actually changed or molded you into? Oh yeah, absolutely. So they brought me into a consulting group, and inside this consulting group were people with mega resumes. I mean, billion dollar deals on their resumes. Now, granted, they were selling things that have nothing to do with with what I sold. And so they come and if you guys have ever met me, I'm outside of the trade shows, I would show up usually dressed up, but I'm a shorts and t-shirt guy like 99% of the time. And so they show up here at my offices and I mean, they're all in the suits and all that stuff. And I'm like, what do you know about what I do? And, but you know, the people who gave me the money told me I had to listen to these people. Right. And so, you know, the first six months was, was tough, uh, just going through a new process, but you had to be open to it because it's what I had to do. People who had done what I was trying to do or telling me this is what I needed to do. So as painful as it was, I was going through it. And one day the, the head guy, uh, his name's John Rapogle and John has been the CEO of Burt's Bees, which he transacted to Clorox. He's also been the CEO of Seventh Generation, which he also sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. So this is generally a guy you want to listen to. And uh, he said, hey, look, this VP from Target uh, is available. Call him now. Get a deal done. And I'm like, oh, OK. So I call this guy up and, uh, you know, I didn't ask him a single business question. I, I told him to fly out, come hang with me for a day if I don't want to kill you after a day and we can talk like normal people. Um, then we'll get it figured out. And so he flew out and I didn't have the credentials to interview this guy as to whether or not he knows how to be the CEO of a business or not. I could have asked a bunch of questions and acted like I did, but I, I didn't. I had to trust that if I got along with this guy and that if we disagreed that I could sit down with him, you know, and pound out whatever needed to be pounded out to get to the right decision, that was all that mattered. And so we got to the end of the interview process and he's like, this is the strangest thing I've ever gone through. He's worked for lots of big companies and he's like, I've never 
had anything like this. And so I was like, yeah, I'm like, that's welcome to the, you know, to the pirate ship. And uh, he accepted the offer. And, but with that came a lot of other things. It's like, he had to build an executive team. We had to get offices in Raleigh, North Carolina or Durham, North Carolina, because nobody wanted to be in Burlington, North Carolina. He's like, you need to have this whole other office space. Cause I can't bring talent to where you are. And he goes, and if I do, I'm going to have to pay him 50% more, which is less, it's going to be cheaper for you to put the offices in Durham for me to recruit talent. than it's going to be for me to get people to move to where you are. And I was like, I just said, okay. And, uh, that started the building of the executive team and all that stuff, which was, you know, a wild experience, I'll say, to say the least. <laughs> so when you bring in a CEO like that, let's say, uh, I run a 20 to $30 million something brand. I'm, I eventually want to sell. And I, one of the things you're going to say is you got to bring in a real deal CEO. You got to pay them a lot of money and probably give them equity is like, or like, what are the, usually the terms like in today's money, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. That's really what you need to be looking at is, um, not only was it equity for him individually, but also he told me outright, you need to give me a pool of equity that I can go dish out to people. And I lost my mind. I'm like, these people haven't worked for shit. You're going to go and give all this value to them. And they've never even been here. Like, absolutely not. And then, of course, because we got along, we talked it through. And I just realized that was the cost of business. I just didn't know it. So now we put some guardrails up that required vesting times and things of this sort so that if it was terrible, because you've got to be able to fire fast out of all the things you you have to be able to do. People rarely do it because they don't want to admit they screwed up on the hiring side of it. So they they try to fix the square peg round hole and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so overwhelmingly, the team he brought in worked. We had one that didn't and we kicked him out really quick because it was just obviously not a not a fit. But at the end of the day, people love to overthink this stuff, but it's just widgets and all the businesses are just widgets regardless of the space. And so, you know, whether it's logistics or whatever, um, you know, you can bring people in from an outside space that can actually, you know, actually make it work. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. So at some point you, okay. So it sounds like you're getting ready and mm-hmm. Salvation is now, um, yeah, you're still, it was Salvation was the business name or anything. It's ready to rock and roll. Your trend, you're, you're doing good business and everything. Extend has survived. Oh, yeah. you, and I'm not sure yeah, what other products you did. I, I did want to, point out flexitril was a really good joint supplement but it was extend that was making the money right like yeah oh flexitril is my favorite man that that product came along because of my dog um so i had a big mastiff anybody that follows me like if people try to find me on linkedin i've always find this hilarious because i don't really do much of that uh my picture is of my old mastiff that i used to have that's my face picture is a dog and uh, so I love it when people try to find me and can't find me because of that. But, you know, he was a Italian Mastiff, you know, had joint issues. And, uh, you know, I was terrified because he was he was my boy. He was like my best friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got really big into microlactin and looking a lot of the data on that heavily underdosed in most products. And uh, I worked with them. I got with that. And then Natron, um, there's some great guys over there that I really loved uh, hanging out with. And it was uh, IUFlex. And then, um, oh, God, what was the other... I can't remember off the top of my head what the other ingredient still was. Have an but article on it just the, for like legacy oh, sake. So dude, we'll link the, to it. The amount of positive reviews we got off that product. I actually told Nutribone, I said, I know you're going to kill this skew. <laughs> and it's going to kill me that you're going to kill this skew. Mm-hmm. I'm like, because this is a super legit skew that's really helping people. I mean, it, it really did suck to watch that product go away because it, it really was my favorite because it was truly created 
out of something that I was doing oddly for my dog, but then adjusted dosages and, and looked at the data on microlactin and was really impressed by it. Um, and so when I called the people, you know, for the raw material and they're like, what's your dose going to be? And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be, you know, like four grams a day. And they're like, people usually do it at 500 milligrams. I'm like, yeah, that's why it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, shocker. Um, you know, dose creates the result. But, you know, one thing I want to mention, it's not part of this question, but it, it it's important. When I talked about having to bring in the executive team, uh, one of the biggest struggles that happens with companies is that the team that they start with is almost never going to be the team they finish with. And that is the most difficult hurdle that a founder will have to negotiate because the people you start your business with are often friends, family, uh, people that are just super loyal. But as the company grows and transitions, it's really difficult for those people because you have those people because they were likely cheaper on payroll. They didn't have the actual skill set. They're doing accounting and they're in the warehouse packing boxes. You know, that's the way these companies start. And it's it's really difficult as the company grows that you have to bring in people with greater expertise that ultimately end up making more money, get placed over top of your friends. It is the single hardest uh, thing that a founder has to navigate is the growth scale. And for supplement companies, that's usually going to happen. The first inklings will be about 15 to 25 million. Uh, and then 25 to 50, all hell breaks loose because you're talking then usually multiple 3PLs or a client that's got, you know, 40 distribution centers where your logistics turn into something totally different than, oh, I'm just shipping to six places all over the US. And so it's, Cybation was due for that leveling up at that time. And so that team, and it made it easier putting them all in at once because literally everybody was impacted. And my argument to those people was very simple. If you will learn underneath this person coming in, there will probably be an opportunity for you either here or at another company to actually be that person at the next company. It's kind of the only way you can navigate it is say, use this as a learning opportunity, even though it kind of feels like a kick in the face. It's it's a really, really difficult thing for companies to navigate. Yeah, I get it. Because a lot of people, it's a lifestyle, like, you know, living the life and everything in the dietary supplement industry, fitness and everything. So a lot of a lot of us run, this is us included, run as lifestyle businesses. Like we're just, you know, we're having a blast and everything. Um, right. But eventually that vision could change or that um, or the founder's vision changes or something, cha something has to change. And, and that, right. that, that could be tough for a lot of the people here who just want to want to live the life. So, right. Good. Well, you know, that's when you're dealing with consumers where you're living the life, you can authentically speak to it. What people have to realize is when you bring in competent executive staff. So when I took my CEO the first time to GNC, hilarious, because I'd done GNC multiple times. I'm a badass. I get up there, finger guns <laughs> presenting. Everybody's loving all that stuff. But while that sounds good to your buyer, your buyer realistically on the totem pole is actually not that high most of the time. And so what would typically happen at GNC meetings, and this is across all brands and probably still happens to this day, some executive is going to just make about a 60 second appearance, mostly because they need to and they want to just see who is, you know, what's going on, who's this brand. And we were a significant brand in GNC at the time. And so Mike was oddly, his name is Mike as well, uh, was there. And so this guy came over and sat with Mike during my presentation. This guy had never stayed in the room longer than 
60 seconds probably at any other time I had been there. Uh, I did the whole song and dance, got through everything. He's still talking to the person. When we left, we had a floor plan that was going into place. We all of a sudden had a POP display that was going up. Like his ability to talk to that individual was something I could never do. I could do it at what I'd call like the two question depth. He could ask me one, maybe two questions. And then if he got more, I, I was out of water. I didn't know what to do. And so having somebody that's, and people don't understand executives at the corporate level speak a totally different language than what us uh, like normal people do. And that's why I could never break that barrier. And, you know, I was under the impression of leading out at Extend at a lower price point. So we were $23.99 in GNC um, at the time. And so the plan was to go to $29.99 uh, for the 30 serve. And actually, he said, no, we need to go to $34.99. And I about had a heart attack. And I'm like, there's no way. And he goes, well, your number dynamics don't work. He's like, at scale, they're going to bankrupt you if you actually get you know, double your growth. He, and he was laying out all this stuff. He said, you just can't afford it. You have to do this. And so we went from $23.99 to $34.99. And I was mortified. And our sales doubled in unit volume because the perception on the shelf was now that we were the premium price product, which premium price meant from our competitor was at $29.99. I was trying to beat them at $23.99. We instead went to $34.99, which allowed us to promote to $28, $27.99 when needed, which still gave us a margin that was a working business margin. And so, you know, I would have never made that decision. He made it because he knew how to talk to the CFO that I already had in place. And they were able to come up with a strategic plan that actually worked. And you had to get, so. yeah, if I have a couple of things, but you had to get the emotion out of there. And you were emotionally attached to your, your product, your price point. Whereas a, a real CEO is just going to nuts and bolts this thing and knows how to speak right. to GNC came out of target or whatever. So uh, that, that's amazing, but it's kind of funny. We hear, we hear those stories in business class and you just like, don't want to believe it, but you raise the price and sales double. So. Yeah, I, I saw it. I mean, the, the unit volume went through, you know, went through the roof. And I mean, I, at first, of course, you don't know if it's, you know, you got to correlate cause eight type stuff, you know, what's really driving the result. And a lot of times in the the sports industry, the result uh, people believe is driven by them. They love to take all the credit for all the things. Like I would love to say that extend because I am awesome and I made the best product ever and it tasted great is the reason why it was so successful. I would say that 50% of extend success is because of blender ball. What? Because yeah, the blender ball, the shaker. Was it, were they co-packaged yes. together? Oh, there you go. Were they, so what's the story? Think about it. Old school shaker cups sucked. There was nothing that would seal. And if you went to the gym, you bought your drink out of the cooler. You bought a cooler, a ripped force or whatever it was back in the day. And that was actually your pre-workout. There wasn't, there wasn't the use occasion for pre-workout was actually during your pre-workout in those days. We didn't think of it as much because that's where you could, that's where you could buy it. You didn't go and take it an hour before, really. There were so many people that would go to the gym, buy it out of the cooler. Well, the old school heads would carry around the old twist top um, shaker cup that, you know, wouldn't seal and it would drip down yeah. on the sides and stain the gym floors, right? So who do you think were the earliest adopters of a true, good, high quality shaker cup? Well, it's, you know, the people most physically fit, you know, in the gym, there was an obvious use occasion for extend, which was drink it during your workout. It's almost a hydration drink that also had these aminos in it. So now you see 
the most in shape person in your gym with a with a shaker that you can see through that's green, purple, blue, red, whatever the color is. So when you're the novice lifter and you don't know anything, you see the best person in the gym drinking a flavored drink. What are you drinking? Oh, I'm drinking Extend. I'm drinking BCAs or whatever. The blender ball shaker created the true use occasion for interworkout drinks because there was actually a shaker that wouldn't leak all over the place. So the problem was understanding that in the moment that whatever we were doing wasn't driving the 50% bump in revenue. So we didn't get misguided on what was happening because let's say you were spending advertising dollars uh, in a print magazine and you're like, oh my God, we spent this money. Our sales are up 50%. That didn't have anything to do with the results. The fact that a legitimate shaker cup came out was the reason why we were having early success. Well, how right did you, wait, how, so how did you detect that? I'm not calling you a liar. I, I honestly don't believe you. Cause I saw the trajectory of, <laughs> of extent. I'm sure you're right, but it's like, yeah, it doesn't, that, how did you figure that out then? Well, it was simple because all the people that we would look at, that were drinking our product where, how are people drinking the product? How do you consume the product? You cannot make extend at that time without it going into a shaker cup. Mm -hmm. And yes, we had good growth for a period of about two and a half to three years, but the launch point of it jumping from 5 million to 9 million, there was no significant retail expansion. There was nothing that we could point to that was, well, we drove more units uh, because we either spent the advertising or whatever. The money wasn't there to do the advertising, but we had this huge lift across the board. So if I don't advertise, I'm not driving the business through spend. Why did the business literally do a 100 from $5 million to $9 million jump? Well, I had been using, everybody was violating this mm -hmm. patent. Like they're, they're blender, everybody was making shaker cups and sending them out. They would always leak and blender ball was excellent at enforcement. And so it just hit us one day when we were sitting there and we were all like, God, you know, cause you're talking about why is this happening? And we were just sitting there looking at it. We talked to blender, uh, blender bottle about making a much bigger version because my whole thing was, People would dose a flavored product, not to its efficacious dose, but they would dose it to whatever the flavor was that was right for them for the container that they were using. So if you gave a much larger container, it gave the opportunity for higher dosing, which means going through more product and so on and so on. Um, and so that's why when people would say, what's the dose? It's like, well, you're going to, it doesn't matter what I tell you. If one's too sweet, you're going to do half. And if one isn't enough, you'll go to one and a half. It's just the way people work. Yeah. I, I actually hilariously think it's a kind of a parallel to pre-workouts being slightly underdosed. So you could do that three, four scoop idea. Like to me, the, all of these things became like just community, social media type things. Like people, I remember people just drinking like Kool-Aid or like Mio drops just to have that colored liquid in the gym. Like to, to be like that big guy at the gym that had a drink. I 100% yep. uh, believe Mike on that, that it, it had to do with the blender bottles because I remember just wanting to go to GNC just so I could have something like everyone else did. Like I didn't, I honestly had no clue what I was drinking. I was, I was drinking that, that carb from MHP, which tasted terrible, but you know, I was like everyone else, dark matter, dark matter. It was like, it was like everyone else. Right. In the gym, yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing you have to create the use occasion for any product. Why and when am I taking this? And it needs to be really clear. There was an obvious opportunity to drink it 
uh, you know, during the workout is what made the most sense. And that, and it, I don't, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that that was the only reason, but it made a significant difference because it, it allowed you to do it instead of making the crappy paper funnel that we've all made to put into a Dasani water bottle, you know, and then go and shake it up and go to the gym. So by making it easier to consume the product, it allowed us to actually be in a position. I think outside of protein powders, we were in the best position to benefit from a high quality uh, shaker product. And so people are spoiled these days, man. The products mm -hmm. taste great. They mix good. They got a bottle that goes in. I'm the old man walking in the snow both ways. <laughs> so I, I have a, I have a kind of a question that's, it, it's kind of on, on this topic. We've talked about kind of like GNC and how you work with them. Um, and in comparing that kind of to brands in today's day and age, uh, Mike actually watched our vitamin shop podcast last week and he had some things to say. And I, I'm kind of curious, I want to give you like the, the floor to talk about just in general, you said there were things that Vitamin Shop was saying that people won't pick up on. But also, I want to know, like, in terms of like what brands are doing today, like, like what's your statement on how that's working right now? What were you thinking? Yeah, so I thought the Vitamin uh, podcast was great that you get uh, you guys did because I don't think people will hear what they needed to hear out of it, and instead they'll hear what they want to hear out of it. So, you know, most people, when they speak on these topics, it's just a bunch of word vomit because they like to say things that sound good. And, oh, look, I've got a line that you can snip it up and it sounds great. And, you know, I've heard you and I give you credit uh, for talking about innovation and what that definition really means. And we've, we've expanded it to be basically almost any change in the product where people will define innovation as a flavor or, you know, working with uh, big other brands to do co-ops together and stuff. Uh, where most people screw up is thinking that innovation actually matters uh, because I don't think it does, uh, hardly at all. Um, in a retail store, 10% of the inventory is going to be risky. And by risky, I mean something that's on the edge that they don't have hard data to be able to back up that they needed in, in the room. And because at the end of the day, any retail space is just made up of square inches and square dollars. And so at the highest level, while your buyer might tell you all the things, the people that are multiple levels above them, it's going to come down to dollars and cents. And so, you know, if you take up this much shelf space with crappy margin, um, they're going to replace you if you can't keep in stock and all that other stuff. And so really, you just have to think about if you want to be at a big retailer, let's say I come in right now today, I start a brand tomorrow, which I would not do because I don't want to do another startup. If I went to them, though, I would go to them and tell them three things. I'm going to be in stock. I'm going to be margin accretive. I'm going to beat out whoever is on the shelf that I'm going to end up taking. And here's how I'm going to drive people to your retailer. And by the way, I'm buying them out to take their shelf spot. I will have every retailer in the country putting a contract in front of me to sign if I come to them with that. I don't care how much innovation you have. Innovation matters if those other three are already handled because that's the way retail works. Nobody cares. You can have all the innovation in the world. If you're not available, it's it's irrelevant. And very few people, when they make the first step into vitamin chop, because all they do is go, man, I'm killing it over here, so I would kill it over there. It's a totally different skill set to kill it over there. It's like a different sport. Just because you're good at one doesn't mean you're good at the other. And so, you know, people go in there and they, they underestimate what it's going to take cash wise to go and set the retailer, give them the back of inventory and then the inventory you're going to need for their seasonality and the various things that are going on. Um, so while you're talking to the retailer, it's all word vomit 
unless you hit those three points. You can be the most innovative company in the world. If they don't believe that you can keep them in stock, that you have the right margins for them, and that you're going to drive people into their store, they don't care. <laughs> I mean, they just don't. Like, because if they don't have those three things, there's no business. There's just, there's nothing there to have. And you will be bought out by somebody that will do so, that. So I bought endless, I bought tons of shelf space at Vitamin Shop to get more flavors of Extended. I think one of the things that people won't, one of the reasons people won't uh, appreciate what you have to say, and kind of like, this is a little bit aggregative of what we've been talking about, is um, the buyers and merchants at these stores, for instance, uh, a lot of the GNC, at least the last generation, was all from GameStop. Vitamin Shop now is all from Toys R Us. Like people who just buy and sell things for, that's literally their whole business. And they don't look at, Yep. you know, this new fat burning ingredient, they don't look at to them, they don't care. It's whether or not these things can can be satisfied. So we understand um, staying in stock is just like, you know, inventory, supply chain, uh, cash flow management. Uh, I forget what the second one was, but the one that stuck out to me that I want to hear about is like, this is how I'm driving people to your stores in 20. That's is that something that you have a, a strategy for. Is that something you're willing to share on or like, that's where I was going to go on the attack too. Cause Mike, <laughs> obviously things have changed since 2017 or whatever. Like mm -hmm. um, we got a whole new generation of zoomers coming in. Social media has changed. 2020 happened. Like, so a lot of things have flipped. Um, I guess we're calling you a dinosaur right now. So if you, so now that you've announced your next startup, I'm joking there. Um, <laughs> do you, would, is this something you just hire out or like, would you be part of this? Like, I don't even know, like, are you the CEO or you still talk to your old CEO and everything? Like, yeah, you got to get foot traffic. Oh, yeah. in. Do you still have a, a game plan on that? Yeah, absolutely. And what I will say is it, First of all, the person that comes up and if they were doing this podcast and given the question you just asked, if they gave you an answer really direct, that was like this umbrella answer, that's the word vomit I'm talking about. There's been a lot of guests on here that have thrown words around that said absolutely nothing, but they said a lot of keywords that sounded absolutely, we're going to activate and we're going to do this and do that. I just want to be like, dude, shut the fuck up. You're not actually doing much of anything. Like it's... Each category is unique. So if I'm going into the shelf at Vitamin Shop and I'm going to place a pre-workout, my strategy for getting people into the store for the pre-workout is going to probably be totally different than doing it in the amino category or doing it in any other category. Because the presentation I need to give to the retailer is this is your set. Somebody is coming in, they're standing in front of this block of stuff. So you have you know, brand A that goes super heavy on TikTok, Instagram, whatever. They don't do anything on Facebook. Now, yes, a lot of people think Facebook as the dinosaur, but there's still consumers there. My strategy isn't dictated by what I think is right. My strategy is dictated by what my competition is doing that leaves me a void to go in and say, hey, retailer, all the brands you have here, these are their five hot spots where they crush it. And I'm not going over there because there's no reason for me to. I'm going to bring you consumers from over here that will come in. And now all the retailer cares about is that those people are new. If I tell them I'm just going to redirect the consumer that's already in there to them, this is why it has to be margin accretive. If I can go in and go, not only am I going to drive people in theory, because you don't really know, but like you put the plan together. But if they buy my widget, my widget makes you 5% more margin dollars than that widget right there. So let's say all things are equal and all I do is move the shopper. That's a positive for the retailer. So that's, you know, the theory is I'm going to bring more, but let's say I don't, and I'm just keeping the person in the box that they're in front of. 
but I bring them to a product that's 5% greater margin, then obviously that retailer is happy. So my point is the categories and where you're going to go are what dictate the strategy for how you bring people in. And so if somebody goes, well, we're just going to go on Instagram and activate all this stuff and drive all these people. Congratulations. The same people that are, you're now popping up in front of are the same people that they are already ex being exposed by those other people's social media. So my job is two things. I got to go to a new place to bring in consumers and I have to steal the consumer from the other guy. So one of those is done on the shelf and the other one is done through whichever marketing angle makes the most sense. But anybody that says they know what that marketing angle is before they know the, the marketing scope of their competitors in the specific retailer that they're competing in, they're just full okay. of shit. I, they I have one more follow. Up. We're going to go like slightly deeper on this because I because I love what you're saying. So all of these things make sense. You're talking to category managers who also speak this language. And like we're saying, like there's this language that you know merchants speak that a lot of brand owners don't because they come from D2C or whatever the reason is. Now, my final question for you is if if this is all so simple, why don't these in-store brands do it? GNC has Beyond Raw, Vitamin Shop has Body Tech. They're great brands. They cut out, what, 40% of the margin by doing it themselves? If, if that's like the big yep. move, like why aren't they doing this so simply? You wash clothes, right? Watch what? Closed? You wash oh, clothes. <laughs> okay, right? yeah. Yeah, what, what laundry detergent Whatever's do you use? Whatever's cheapest. Jill uses okay. some natural yeah. stuff. Yeah. Whatever's got right. craziness in Every it. Every grocery store pharmacy on the planet has a house brand. We don't all buy it. We buy into marketing. We people, even though Beyond Raw is can be a fantastic brand, and it is, it's not to take anything away from it. Pro performance has been around for a billion years, but why do you buy Optimum? Why do you buy Nutribolt, you know, with uh Cellucor stuff and all that? It's because the branding matters. Was, there's something inherently programmed in us to not buy the generic of what's out there. And we're all guilty of it. Toothpaste, mm -hmm. deodorants, laundry detergents, whatever, super common household items. We truly believe, you know, there's a difference. There's like one marshmallow factory in the country. They all come out of one place, but yet, you know, they're all in different bags and we still would buy a branded bag over a, a commodity version. So I don't really have a great answer as to why, other than I think the placement in the, in the store creates the problem because when you walk, you could take somebody into GNC and they know that beyond raw pro performance, those types of brands were the house brand. And I think if you have too much of it, that's a, that's a problem too. Cause it's kind of a sign that that's the house brand, because I want to be clear, overwhelmingly supplement brands aren't brands. They never were, they never will be, uh, but they want to be out of stupidity. Um, they just need to be askew, but that doesn't like satiate the ego. So they want to go and make 700 SKUs instead of folk, which is what creates a problem in the transaction area. So, um, so Cyvation wasn't a brand extend was the brand no. or extend is a SKU. Yeah. Was Cyvation around anymore? Yeah. <laughs> it's extend yeah. like yeah. It, that they bought extend. Right. I mean, the, the, the whole origin of Nutribolt and buying Salvation is is really simple. They went hard twice at trying to take over the amino space, and at some point it became more. It became easier to acquire than to build, which any company of size should follow, sort of as a model. Which is why it's so important to be focused in your brand instead of trying to be all things. And this is 
strictly speaking to the acquisition side. There's plenty of companies that you can grow and try to spread out. And that's what you want to do for the rest of your life. But I'm talking about if you want to be transactable, I was transactable for the simple reason that I did one thing and I was the best in the country at it. I was the biggest brand doing it, which made it a bolt on for any company and it made it really easy. And honestly, the the sale of Salvation was an accident. It wasn't something that was pre-planned. I was sitting, I, I'd lost my mom. I was at the Olympia literally two days, three days after uh, that had happened. I was back and forth about doing it, but we flew out a hundred people uh, for our acti- uh, activation team. Uh, you know, we had all these people, you know, all over the country that were really representing us. And it was the training I'd spent months preparing this to train all of these people and everything from how they interacted with customers, businesses, the whole nine, uh, you know, and then my mom passed and I was like, oh man, I don't know if I can do it. And, you know, so I ended up going out there and I had a drink with Mike DiMaggio and Mike DiMaggio is, he reminds me of somebody that, will never get the respect that he should because he is absolutely probably the smartest person in this space, in my opinion, but he's also a close friend. And uh, we were, he had lost his mom the year before. We're at a bar having a drink, kind of toasted it up. And I said, uh, man, I said, this is so dumb. I'm like, I've spent you know all this time burying myself in this business. I should have, even though I spent a tremendous amount of time with my mom during a passing, you will always think you should have done more. And so I'm like, I'm gonna take a year get my shit together. And then I'm going to run a process after that year and whatever the company sells for, that's what it sells for. And I don't care. We cheered it and I didn't think anything about it. That was in September of 16, October of 16. He called me. I said, it was a late call and we're, we're close friends, but we don't talk a lot. So like I picked it up and I'm like, are you okay? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things are good. He's like, uh, how serious are you about wanting to sell salvation? And I was like, oh my God. I was like, um, yeah, I mean, you put enough money in front of me, I'll do anything probably. And he goes, well, what do you want for it? That wasn't a question I was prepared for. I I had, I was not ready for that conversation. So I just made something up. And um, he told me I was crazy. And uh, it was about 45 days later, we signed our letter of intent in December of 16. And then we closed it March 31st of 17. And the number that I told him that night is what I got. So told him, I said, I guess I wasn't full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so for those uh, flashing back episode 100, we were with uh, Dan Fabricant of NPA. We spent a lot of time with Mike DiMaggio there. He is indeed the man. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a that was a great trip. That was when we got to connect with him. So I totally I totally get the allure. There's there's a lot of people yeah. behind the scenes that you might not see on a uh, on social media posts and stuff at, at Cellucor or something like that. But they're they're awesome people. Yeah. So Look, can I ask? Uh, he says you're crazy sure. for this number that you want, uh, but you end up getting it like what are the lessons to be learned from like, no, I guess, did you know your worth or did you just throw something crazy? And also like what factors of salvation made you worth this crazy number? Like what were you thankful that you had done to really get that? So I think the easiest way to answer that is to probably answer or say what the three to four things are that most companies screw up when they're trying to, to go and do this process. So backtracking, um, you know, about 14, 15 months prior is when I brought in the executive team. And so they've been there about a year. So we've, we've now become official. I do board meetings and we take minutes and blah, 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 all that stuff. But what really mattered was we knew that we were going to start to prepare 
based on people knew that my mom was not doing well. And so there was some background work, mainly by my super amazing CFO who has been with me since 2005 and is with me today on any of the projects that I do. But companies don't do the enough prep. They don't look at um, their trailing 12 month period. Like you need about 18 months to prepare a business to sell for the most part, unless you're doing everything perfectly, which nobody is because you're looking forward, not, not backwards. And so your trailing 12 months needs to look, you know, a certain way you need every contract that you have to be locked tight, whether that's with employees, whether that's with your vendors, all of this was stuff that was done when the CEO was brought in because he comes into a very formal world that he's coming from and comes to the wild west of what I was running. And so he gets, not really understanding where we were going to be doing in 12 or 14 months, but gets every contract, you know, in line gets, make sure all the books are right so that he can properly forecast. So when he's sitting in GNC, when he's sitting in vitamin shop and all these other retailers, he can have the right conversations about how much we can spend on marketing and, you know, all these other things. And then, you know, you got to think about your staff. I knew that in a neutral bolt situation, they were not going to take anybody. It was a complete bolt on. Everywhere that we were, Cellucor was. And so granted, there were probably some retailers that uh, I was in that they were not, but that was insignificant to the total. So when I looked at the value proposition for Nutribolt, I can take out all of my staff overhead. I can take out all of my warehousing overhead because everything's going to be absorbed into their system. So if I was selling to somebody else where all of that needed to stay intact, the number would look very different because my EBITDA would not be the same. So I had an idea, but I mean, this was off the cuff of what that number might look like and what a multiple might look like of that. But truly it was, uh, you know, it was made up, but I, I truly felt like I was saying something that would be good for Nutribolt and good for, you know, for Cyvation because we were at the step I didn't want to take, which was all the corporate stuff all the big retailers, all the Walmarts, the Targets, CVS, Walgreens, you know, um, gas stations, whatever. I didn't want to deal with any of that. So I was able to sell a dream, which was, hey man, you guys are geniuses. You know all that stuff over there. I don't want anything to do with any of it. And so why don't you guys go do that? We're at this level. By the time you place it in all those other places, you're going to be at like this level. So this is the thing that companies miss. They don't try to go to market at the right time. They think that if they just build it big and end up with this big number, that the big number means a bigger number. And that's actually not the case because every $10 million, there's a different buyer. So at the top of that mark, let's say you hit a hundred million, the number of people that can invest in that is like this big. Whereas if you would have sold it at half that amount, you know, the right number is in the 20 to 50 range to either bring on private equity you know, or to fully transact out of the business, but people want to just keep growing it because they, they love the ego of it. Um, so yeah, they usually screw up that. And then the final thing I'd say people screw up the final two things would be like founders always have like this vision and they're always aggressive. They're like, Oh, we, we can make this new product and it can go here and we can place it here and it'll do this much unit volume. The person on the other side of the table is looking at every reason not to buy from you. That's their job. Their job is to rip you apart. So if you have people going on, I don't know, podcast and saying dumb shit like, oh, we have the best lifetime value that's ever existed of a customer, that's going to be used against you because I promise you, you don't. 
Um, the number of companies that are out there that people have no clue about is staggering because I see all the deals. Um, so you got to be really careful about what you put into the universe, about what your company is. Um, and so hyper aggressive founder who thinks all optimism, buyer, their only job at the time you sell the or sign the um, letter of intent, the letter of intent is simply the stake in the ground. Your job is to keep it there. Their job is to make it go into the bottom. Um, and there's a really well-known deal in the space that that closed years ago in the 2.0 period um, that 40 million was trimmed off the final number, even the announced number because of clawbacks, um, you know, and everything else. And so you just got to remember the buyer's risk adverse and the seller is very risk heavy. That's why they're in the, the position they're in. And so, you know, it's it's a lot to go through the deal because everybody you need to do it is not anybody that you've ever worked with. The accountants, the lawyers, uh, consultants, and all these people want a piece of what's going on. Um, so it's, and during that whole time, you better not drop in sales because once again, that's the hammer they're gonna drop on you for, oh, this business is terrible. You were going to sell us a good business. Now it's a piece of crap. So we got to take, you know, 5 million off the table. It's brutal, man. It's brutal. Wow. Okay. So I know Ben's got a question. I just need to reiterate something you said, because I think it just hit me like a, like a bag of bricks when <laughs> you mentioned, okay, so like you weren't in the Walmarts of the world and everything. And that's perfect mm -hmm. because someone else can grow it. When we have these brands that are getting to be everywhere, when there's a buyer for Dumb. them, the buyer has nowhere else to go. Like maybe Costco. What if they're already there? Like that might, I don't, it, it seems like we've, we have so many brands doing all these things that there's, there's no, that's it. Like there's what, what, what bigger is there to do? I, so if I, I just, I, I just got why sell? you wanted to come on here. So like, yeah, that's amazing. Wow. All right. Yeah. If I, I have to have something to sell and if you've taken up all the possibilities, then what do I have? To, then your numbers better be so amazing that there would be 500 people lined up to buy you, which is not the case. So people over skew because it's exciting. You get to formulate and you make a product and, you know, then you take the eye off the ball and end up trying to do something else. It's different if you do what Nutribolt did. They are the king with C4 during this period. And they have the ability to go, you know what, we're going to shave a certain percentage. We'll try to build some new stuff out. And if it doesn't take, that's okay. Because why? We're literally number one in the market in this skew. So they can afford to do that. I will never understand somebody who's like 15th in everything or 15th with their best skew and like 75th in something else. And the next thing you're here, they're going to make a greens product or something. And it's like, it's so stupid. They don't have the money to usually actually drive the product to do anything. Supplement consumers rarely open up a cabinet and have a universal brand because if they did, we all would have had optimum in our cabinet for 20 years because they that's where you bought protein. So if optimum, the gigantic protein supplier, can't get you to buy their other SKUs, what makes you think that you can do it because you've got some magic? No, but if you give me a product, one, and it's not sexy to go the amount of work it's going to take to go from you know the 15th product to maybe the 10th best product in the category that's not sexy it's hard you know but it's easy to go and make a new SKU and put it up on amazon and then hope some stuff works out but now you're taking away every opportunity for me to bolt that onto somebody else because it's either SKUs that have to be discontinued contracts that have to be negotiated out inventory that's got to be cut out like the only reason i made anything else 
uh, when I was doing Salvation is either international market that required prepay because I was like, I'm not going to do this. This makes no sense. I gave a presentation at Europa one time. I threw up our protein on the screen and I said, this is stuff you guys don't sell. And they all laughed because they were expecting me to give some huge dissertation on protein. And I'm like, no, you guys sell Extend, but hey, we have this protein because I was selling it internationally. It had nothing to do with the domestic market. I didn't make, I did, Flexitril was the only thing I made where I was like, damn it, this works. I'm doing it, personal project out the door. Uh, and then I sold the company. Amen. So. I want to say thank you for the Flexitril idea because I did end up giving my, uh, my boy cat a uh, the microlactin as well. So that was all. Yeah, you. I appreciate you, man. Seriously, <laughs> I want to say thanks for a long time. Ben had a question. Yeah, I'm Mike kind of yeah kind of got it with with the thing. I, I was going to put this in car terms. I know that Mike is a is an old school Mopar guy. Like for me, mm. the way I was imagining it was like you don't sell the car on the highway in fifth gear. Like you're in third gear. Like you have ways to go. Like if you don't have anywhere to go with it, then there's nothing to do. But that was already kind of uh, beaten with it uh, beaten a little bit. Uh, what I wanted to add, though, is you mentioned uh, owners coming on like podcasts or putting things in the universe. That has actually become Mike's and my strategy with these podcasts. We we said early on, and I don't think you knew what we were saying. We give the guest a rope. Like we're giving you a lot of rope. You can either hoist your flag with it oh. or you can hang yourself. But we let you do it. And honestly, we'll post the podcast either way unless you really like, you know, don't want it out there. But like we kind of give people like the the room to do what they want to do with it you're doing a great job i'm sure you're gonna get a lot of offers for new startups that you don't want to get involved with but <laughs> but yeah i mean you know there's plenty of people who come on here and tell us that they have you know the best this or the number one rated that and it's like you can look up spins data you can look up all most of the stuff you can you can find right. most of the stuff if you're actually interested in finding out the, the you know the wild part uh that i didn't anticipate after the you know the salvation deal and you know, now having the number of deals, you know, under my belt, if a nutrition thing is offered to a PE group at some point, if it's in a capsule or a powder, if it doesn't cross my desk, it's going to cross my former, you know, CEO's desk, and then we'll chat about it. The number of brands that are out there that people have no clue about that are crushing it uh, is insane. And a lot of them, I don't know if it's by design or by accident, but they're understanding that they need to stay in their lane. And so if, if I'm getting a book to look at for investment or consulting or whatever, by the time it's gotten to me, they've, they, you know, they've got a, somebody that's helping them and they're molding it. They understand like, this is the bucket that I fit in. Do you know somebody else that I could go and partner with? And maybe the two, you know, one plus one equals five, you know, or, you know, something that I'm really good at X retailer, like the wildest one I saw was, Typically, Costco is a difficult retailer because of margin constraints and stuff like that. And obviously, distribution is big. Uh, this company literally has nothing else. They're literally just Costco, and they are destroying it. And I, I had no clue, no clue whatsoever. And I mean, I'm a brand that's of size. The amount of brands that exist out there that are north of 20 million and under 60 million is infinitely larger than it was 20 years ago because of the number of places you can be at 15, 20, 30, 40 million and almost be invisible because you're, you know, skews on Amazon or your skews at some random retailer or a series of gas stations or whatever. Uh, direct to consumer obviously, you know, is much stronger now than it used to be. So it's a, it's a wild world. So when you really see behind the curtain and you know all this stuff, and then you see people that go out and say all these things. And I'm just like, Oh my God, I'm like, yeah, these people are going to be the biggest barrier 
to them probably transacting and transacting isn't for everybody. Like it's not, some people want to do this for their whole lives and that's totally fine. My only point is that if you are trying to, you know, sell your business, whether it's to private equity and, you know, the dumb rule of private equity is sort of, you know, whatever they invest, they're going to want, you know, somewhere around a three X multiple of that within five years. And so if you can't provide that plan of how you're going to do that, they're not going to be interested. So guess what? If you shoot your shot all over the place with every SKU and every retailer, what's my plan? Congratulations. You went into a retailer and barely got enough turns to turn. That excites nobody. And so because their biggest argument is going to be, well, if you know how to grow this business, which is the plan you're going to put in front of that acquirer, then why aren't you doing it? Because if it's that easy, go do it. Much easier to say, I'm crushing it here. And if I could go over there, well, I don't really have the expertise, but if I brought in expertise, they could probably figure out how to crush it over there. And so you find the person that has that expertise and then put them together. And so being able to see all those books allows, you know, sort of all of that to come together. Beautiful. I, f- I feel wow. like we've kind of all right. crushed all the topics here. I, I, I don't. Well, I want to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got time. So we left off uh, in our chronological story of Mike McCandless. Oh, yeah. We left off. You sold. So you've sold Salvation. Now you are, I'm guessing, they got your balls in a vice. You're, you're, you're in a non-compete, right? Like you've, you've mentioned non-competes yes. many times. So yes. what does that look like? Are you not allowed to touch a single like dietary supplement at all? Are you out of sports nutrition? What can and can't you do? Uh, I mean, you, maybe you can't share this either, but I'm kind of curious, yeah. like, where to next for you? And uh, and you had to have had a plan. Like, you're obviously someone who's got to keep keep working, it seems like. So what can... Um, right. What was your, what was your original plan? Like, I'm going to sell Salvation someday. You had to realize there's gotta be something next. Yeah. You know, I wasn't really sure my life got, uh, you know, turned upside down, you know, while, you know, the the death of a family member, even when you know it's coming, you're still never, of course, prepared for it. And, uh, you know, my dad is in excellent health. And so I, a lot of it was, uh, for people that don't know, my dad used to race cars and stuff. And so when I, you know, post Salvation, I went and found his old race cars and restored those. And I have a car museum here in town and, you know, it's something I do with my dad and he loves it. And, you know, I take him to events and, you know, bring his cars around and, you know, he gets to be the version of him. He was in the sixties and seventies, you know, when he was racing sort of in his, where are you and what's the name of the museum? Uh, it's, uh, it's in Burlington, North Carolina and uh, real original name. It's called a uh, McCandless collection. There you go. Um, so yeah, you know, nothing, I just uh, turned it into a nonprofit. We work with local community colleges to help with a bunch of students over there and stuff like that. But you know, it's something I'm passionate about. And then I started an auction company selling old advertising signs and stuff like that. Like I have to work. I don't know how not to, and I couldn't get near the supplement space. And it wasn't just because, you know, of the Nutribolt restrictions, which are totally normal mm-hmm. and in line with a, with a, a deal like that. Um, but, you know, I've had half a dozen transactions, four of those in the past, you know, 48 months. Well, yeah, 24 months. So yeah, it's uh, those have all cleared now. Um, because I was more passive in those other ones and just more advisory. So I wasn't as integral to the day-to-day stuff. So at this point, I'm free to do pretty much whatever I want. I've done way too many startups. Uh, I don't, I'm too old. I don't have it in me to, to do that at this point. The auction business was a startup and I've enjoyed that. But, you know, I think probably where I, I can serve best is sort of owner to owner, founder to founder, about what it takes to go from where they are, if it's a transaction thing they want, 
and give some, uh, you know, some guidelines for it because a lot of this stuff is really a lot simpler than people want to make it. But if you say that something's really complicated, it requires you to hire it out. You know, every process we've ever ran as this core group that I have, um, we've never brought in a consultant. We've never outsourced anything. When we did the Nutribolt deal, dude, it was hilarious. They show up with KPMG. We had this like massive conference table at our place in Durham and there are people all over the place. And we had two people and that was it. And the advantage of that is those two people knew every detail of the business, which didn't allow for something to fall through the cracks. If you have 12 people that are monitoring a project, I thought you had it. I thought you had it. I thought you had it. And I think that gave us a, a pretty big strategic advantage. But more importantly, we've done all of it now. Like there's the deals are deals. It doesn't matter what the widget is. The structure and all this type of stuff is is sort of the same. So, so it sounds like Mike and I gotcha. have a tactical advantage. So, uh, I guess maybe you, you, I don't know if you didn't answer my question on purpose, but what do those non-competes look like? Are you not oh. allowed to, what are you allowed oh, to yeah. not allowed yeah, to yeah, do? Yeah. Well, I can do anything now, but typically right. a non-compete, you know, will depend on, in my case, you know, being so integral to the brand, the last thing that they wanted was for me to all of a sudden have money and then be able to come right back into the space. Right. So typically I would say on the, a normal non-compete, for somebody that was in my position for the size of the deal, I think two years would probably be the minimum that you would normally see. I've seen them as long as five. Mine was not that long um, for that specific. They can also be different things like, you know, are categories exempt and things like that. I had other things within the keto space that I was doing. And so like that was a carve out, you know, that existed, but there were, you know, raw materials, like you can't have, you know, these ingredients inside of any of your products to where there could be potential crossover and all that is a hundred percent normal. Uh, you know, they're, they're a company is buying you. They reserve the right to make sure you don't somehow come back to them and become a problem. Right. So, um, that, that stuff's totally normal. The more recent ones were more in like the six to 12 month range. And that's just sort of standard almost for anybody, you know, at the, at the executive level. Um, but you know, generally people could go work somewhere else. Like if it was a, you know, your chief marketing officer, if they are not transitioning, obviously could go work, you know, at another company or something like that. So you, you get what you negotiate and, you know, in these types of deals where it's not what I would call corporate to corporate, like Cellucor didn't need me in the handoff. I mean, I, I would of course have done whatever. I mean, two days after the deal, I signed the deal, you know, the deal of my life. And I'm on a plane to China to go negotiate, you know, raw material pricing because I had scheduled it. Yes, granted, I didn't need to do it, but like I wanted to go see my vendors face to face and tell them what had happened um, because I believe in face to face, you know, environments. And so, you know, yeah, I was on a plane right over there to go tell them, you know, hey, this is what's happening. This is what's going to go on. And, you know, that's been real. They a lot of people that I've worked with respect that fact. They like to do it face to face, you know, and that's that's how I like to be. Yeah, on Facebook, you've posted a lot of the things you've eaten in those trips to China. Oh. <laughs> Dude, my greatest uh, China drinking story because it's it's always a thing over there. Uh, you know, they get the lazy Susan out, and you know they they bring you the 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 baju, uh, you know, to to drink, and this is at like ten in the morning. Um, you know, and they would always bring a ringer who his only job was to constantly cheers you as a guest of honor so that you would have to continue, you know, drinking. And then they would have your negotiations with you. And you got to remember at the time, I'm the largest branch chain buyer in the world. So there were two factories that could actually handle our volume. And I would spot check four times a year unannounced 
to make sure from a QC perspective that, you know, things were what they needed to be because, you know, it, it wasn't uncommon for branch chain material to be 93% pure uh, if you didn't know what you were doing. And so, you know, we needed to maintain it 99% because of the fact of the overfill you would need at 93% to make sure you could stay at, you know, proper label claim and all that type of stuff. Um, so anyway, I'm, I had been on a previous trip and had done all the drinking and all that stuff. And then afterwards, you know, threw up on the side of the road. And so this time, because I drink everybody, I'm not a drinker, but I, for some reason was able to handle a lot of uh, alcohol that day. So they brought in a guy and we sit down and these are like thimbles. They're like really small, but then they had like this five ouncer that was pretty big. And so they're filling up the little thimbles and they're sitting here cheersing it and cheersing it. And I'm there with uh, Matt Titlow from Compound Solutions. And I have the the really big blender bottle one, the one that's like a, like a mega, like a 48 ounce. And it's really dark. And I had Extend Perform in it at the time, which had Pico 2 in it. And so what I was doing is I would take the shot, I would open this up and I would spit it back into the bottle. And so I was letting them cheers me all the time. I'm like, boom, 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 taking them, boom, 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 spitting them back in the bottle. Matt's texting me, dude, you don't have to drink that much, man. Like you're going to end up passing out. You're going to throw up. It's going to be terrible. And I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. And so then everybody's starting to get pretty hammered. And the, the president of the factory said he couldn't drink because of a toothache because he wanted to be able to negotiate with, you know, being totally sober and thinking I'm drunk. So after I've gotten everybody pretty tipsy, I pick up the five ouncer. And I'm like, okay, I'm cheersing now. And if I cheers, everybody has to drink. And so I'm like, all right. And they're all looking at me like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, yeah. And I took it. Now that one I actually took and because I didn't need to, to, I wanted everybody to see it. I slam it down. I got the entire staff sick. Everybody was sick, throwing up. It was a complete mess. But they literally thought I was a drinking god because I was somehow able to consume like you know, 40 ounces of this stuff. It was totally normal. And so, you know, then we go through all of our negotiations and everything. And it's a rite of passage. They will feed you the weirdest stuff, wanting to see if you'll, you know, if you're going to, you know, balk at it or if you're going to follow it. You're in their country. You follow, in my opinion, you follow their traditions. And so I never shied away from eating anything or doing whatever. Um, but yeah, it took some time I, to recover. I've heard that story off, from a, not, not your story, but the story of being forced to drink for all these shots from like multiple different manufacturers. Like I, I that's it's, I, I love hearing it from other people. Cause you know, it's real. I'm, I'm going to show this real quick. It's this just happened in like on my Facebook memory. I actually sent this to uh, Titlow. This is me that's me pointing to the fact that's that five ouncer I was talking about. <laughs> nice. And I sent it to him just as a joke because that was the, that was the one that I actually picked up and, uh, and slammed, uh, you know, there at the thing. So it's funny. It's a relevant yeah. story to this, uh, so, to this time. So yeah, that was 2000. It's actually kind of funny. I, I wanted oh, to note you mentioning your, uh, random spot checks of manufacturing, uh, to bring a little bit of bookends to this podcast. Uh, that is my bodybuilding.com bullied by Mike McCandle story. Uh, when I was a rep for Nutribio, I'm going to bring this up right now, Mike. You're going to remember this. You bullied me on those on those forums because oh, Glazier no. did do oh, no. did do visual checks of those facilities. But you took a real issue with the fact that we were claiming the BCAs were vegan um, because you're as as, as right. Mm. There is no test to prove that. But we were we were we did the same right. thing. We we would. I mean, I guess you can go as often as you want. They can always switch it around, right? But yeah, no. Right. Uh, I, that, that's actually really funny. <laughs> oh, 
Yeah, the, the trips to China oftentimes are two things. One, I would go to vet a new supplier because everybody would say, hey, we can supply you. So you go to supply side and you go and you see all the people and they have these pictures, of these beautiful manufacturers. And, you know, they're like, oh, we can make all your material. Well, I knew that almost nobody could handle the volume of what we were doing. So, but I would still go and dude, we drove one time, I'm not kidding. It was a five hour drive from where we were. And we, so it was going to take the whole day. We drive out to this factory and a lot of people didn't know this, but we actually had somebody on the ground that worked, you know, in China to help us so that we had inside information of the things that were going on. And so we end up at this guy's uh, factory and we start walking through and he's showing us this factory. It's not his he rented the factory, brought his drums in and set them there and didn't understand because he saw us as the Americans and thought that the person that was driving the car was just a regular person, whereas he was really our consult on the ground. And so within five minutes of being in there, we know this is not his factory. And I mean, like, that's the stuff that, you know, that goes on. Um, did, you call went to another- did you call him out and he totally lose face, all that whole thing? Or did you just no. peace out? No, I, we knew what was happening. So we just expedited it and then, you know, would go to to get out. Um, you know, we went to another one and I actually, I feel like I posted these pictures on bodybuilding.com. We went to one, uh, you know, where just the conditions of the factory were absolutely awful. And, you know, people got to remember with the Olympic Games, uh, you know, coming to China during this time, uh, you know, literally the entire manufacturing area was shut down for six months because they were trying to get pollution control, you know, under they were making people do factory repairs. So any broken glass would have to be fixed and all that. But I would always go to the water treatment uh, aspect because I wanted to see how they were doing their filtration with the water, because that was a lot of times the source of your heavy metal content was how the water being used there, you know, Part of the fact of stuff coming from the ground is obviously it's going to have metal content, but also the water is actually super important uh, to a lot of that. And if people didn't have a data log of any of their you know water treatment stuff, then I would it, it was a no go, you know, at that point. So yeah, it's it was a huge learning experience, and uh, I will be perfectly fine if I if I don't go back, uh, you know, because I would never stay longer than seventy two hours. That was about my max. I just wanted to to push through and see as much as I could, turn around and you know, and get out. And I'd do that, you know, three or four times a Oof. year. Excellent. Well, yeah, I don't have any <laughs> other questions unless there's like other lessons learned from like a couple of the keto things like keto logic, uh, F bomb or fat bomb or whatever you had. Um, yeah. unless the, the lessons are mostly the same there. Right. Uh, well, the thing I'll say, um, you know, so <laughs> I'll tell you what happens when things go wrong. Um, so people can watch, or have watched some of my old social media and could piece together, you know, what was happening. But, uh, you know, I was on the floor of the New York stock exchange in January of 2020, um, which of course at the time didn't understand what that was going to mean for me in the, in the coming weeks, but we were really close. I ketologic and F-bomb were something I'd never done, which was spending a, a lot of money beyond, you know, you have a high burn rate, you're burning cash to grow. Um, and I'd never done a business like that before, you know, and so it was different, but we were growing really fast, um, had a public company that was, you know, going to acquire us. And we were on the back end of the deal. Like we are, you know, within, let's see, we were supposed to close March 31st is when we were supposed to close. And so everything is in place. Now here's where things can go sideways if you don't plan right. Um, knowing this deal was coming through, you're getting a multiple on the dollar that you make, right? So if you make a dollar, you're going to get five to seven bucks on that dollar. 
I had every major retailer in the country wanting to do keto. We were spending a lot of money on national advertising, Tim Tebow, all this stuff. And we, demand was great. We were taking off. It was going fantastic. I literally set every major retailer I could within like a 90 day period at the end of uh, 19 going into 2020. And so I've set CVS, you know, Target, Walgreens, so on and so on. So the problem is that if you set, let's say hypothetically, $5 million worth of retail, you're going to need two and a half million as backstock for their orders that are going to come within four weeks of that initial set, because they're not going to load their stores and the backstock. They're only going to load sort of the stores and then you've got the backstock. And then you need to have inventory that's at the shelf, the backstock, your stock and on order. So that 5 million is 10 million realistically. So what isn't ideal is for the entire country to shut down and people not to go into a brick and mortar store for like, oh, I don't know, like a year when your product is shelf dated. That's a really bad combo. Um, and so at the end of February, the first shutdowns happened and I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, come on. Like, no, this can't happen because I have placed so much inventory that there's no way I'm going to be able to not only move it, but all the inventory I got behind it. I've got, I've got no way to move what's on the shelf because nobody's going into retailers and I've got no way to move what's sitting in my warehouse. All of this based on a calculation of them acquiring us, which I would have to do to service that inventory. There was no way this was an unavoidable outcome. And so uh, then when the pandemic happened, obviously everything backed off, everything stopped and it was a bloodbath. And that was an interesting learning process because I had never been in a business that regressed. And so that was a, a whole new you know, world for me and a lot of other people. Obviously, a lot of other people went through the same thing. Um, and so we obviously lost that deal. And then so we, you know, we, we regroup, we stop the bleeding, do what we can. And then it's like, OK, we're going to relaunch again, you know, going into New Year's. And then Omicron comes out and I'm like, OK, all right, I see it. I'm not supposed to trans. I, I'm paying the price. I'm not supposed to transact this business like I did the last one, you know, not to the same level. And so uh, I accepted my new reality that this was this just was not meant to be. I need to get out of the keto space. And so I uh, ended up selling them off, uh, you know, in the past year. So, you know, being on both sides of that uh, uh, was a huge learning experience. I prefer not to have lessons like that taught. But, uh, you know, they're good to, honestly, it was good to have, um, you know, because I'll do a bunch more deals, I'm sure, in time. And that, that experience at the front line of it is, is invaluable. You can't, te you can't teach it in a book. And, you know, that's, you know, I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, I've never done a business class. I don't really read, you know, the business books and all those types of things. My belief is if I walk into a room of people who have gone to the right schools and done all that stuff, I know their playbook. And they don't know mine uh, because it's usually a bit of chaos. And, you know, that's that's what I use to my advantage is the unpredictability. Um, but you got to have competent unpredictability. The last thing you ever want in a business deal is incompetence because it will drive you insane because what you think are the focus points and the things you need to negotiate, uh, they're not concerned about those. And instead, it's like something totally random. It'll drive you bonkers. So you always want competency on both sides of the table. It's actually people think they would have a big advantage if they don't. And it's it's actually not that way. That, that's why you got to have the right people in the room when you're doing these deals, because it'll cost you a fortune if you don't. Nice. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I don't have any other 
other questions. I'm sure this is going to be <laughs> one that gets some commentary I, for sure. I, I have a fun closeout and, and uh, I mean, this might go sure. way deeper than I'm expecting it to, but uh, with <laughs> knowing that we're at the end of the podcast, you don't have to go too deep if you don't want to. Uh, two tips for selling price plow. When you were talking about um, how the CEO, the things that the CEO did when he came into Salvation, uh, my literal thought in that entire mm -hmm. sentence that you were doing was uh, Dan from Ghost would have loved what you were talking about because the, you know, Ghost is a very sexy company, but the reason that it works right. is not very sexy. It's because all of those things are like put together. Like when you say that most brands are not brands, yeah. like, Ghost is a brand. And, 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 and all of those yeah. things are, you know, quote unquote, buttoned up. And it's why it works. It's why it's why Anheuser-Busch was willing to give them so much money. You know, like, there's, there's a reason why. Yeah, sure. They've been an interesting unit. I haven't dug, you know, uh, into them and I haven't seen a book on them. I haven't tried to. Uh, there was a part of like getting out of the space. I just needed like a soul <laughs> cleanse, like just anything that was not like somebody not asked me. You know, the, the downside of like the medical stuff that I've done is, you know, people know that I study things involving cancer. And so like, dude, it's the weight you take on mm -hmm. of people knowing that when they reach out to you, it's like, Hey, so-and-so is dying. Um, can you help? And it's like, Fuck, I'm trying, you know, like you take on a lot of that. And so between that and then the fitness side of like, Hey bro, like if I take this much of that and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> you know, like I, I can't do it. Like I needed the cleanse. And so now I'm, I'm far enough away from it. I went to the Olympia, I think it was a year after the transaction. I walked in and I turned around and left. I couldn't do, couldn't it. do it. I walked in and I'm like, I, I smell protein <laughs> and protein farts. And I'm like, between all my exes in the industry and everything else, I'm like, I, I, I can't. I've done that. I can't do too, it. It's it's, it's too reason. much. <laughs> oh, God. Well, oh, it's just, it was so much. Dude, I remember the Arnold when like, I showed up with a semi. I pulled a semi trailer inside an 05. So just to give you a difference in perspective, uh, I bought 18 booth spots. I brought a chef in. I had a kitchen, a grill in my booth at the Arnold, and I had a lift-gated truck. So what I did is all the bodybuilders would come over and eat because I was cooking up like fresh chicken and stuff. But the deal was they could have all the chicken and food they wanted, but they had to stand on my lift gate for like 30 seconds and pose. And so everybody's taking all these pictures, and it's bulk nutrition all over the background. Nice. So it's free. I was getting every bodybuilder shot with me for free. So at the end of the show, and I, this is when you could sell stuff at the Arnold instead of giving everything away for free. I went around to every company because nobody wants to be there on the last day. Everybody just wants to get the fuck out of there. And so you got to pack up all your stuff and, you know, give it to the shipper and all that. I went to all of them and I said, pack up all your stuff, leave an invoice. I'll come by with a pallet jack. I'll put it in my trailer because I sold like, you know, 10,000 gym bags. So my trailer was empty. I did not get a single invoice from 53 companies that I had. I put so much inventory. I had over a quarter million dollars of inventory that I got for free at the 2005 <laughs> Arnold because everybody was just, you know, cause it was, you know, two, $3,000 worth of stuff. Nobody cared. And I was just taking pallets and pallets afterwards and put it all in that trailer. That was the most profitable Arnold I ever had in my entire life. It was, it was freaking fantastic. And people were like, bro, I can't believe you got a semi in here. Cost four thousand dollars at the time. I paid like four grand to wrap it with all the bulk nutrition stuff, and it served as my whole working station, like for everything. Awesome. It was crazy. 
I miss those days. Yeah, that's so you're thinking fun. on a whole nother level, man. Like that's the part I'm like, you know what? Okay. I'm a successful guy. I'm not going to be Mike McCandless successful. I don't think unless I have uh, the CEO or someone doing that. I got some ideas, but dude, that's just like, dude, don't have everybody fits in. Everybody fits in the system though. Like that's mm-hmm. the thing. Like you don't have to be, you, there's gotta be a counter to somebody that's like me. You gotta have somebody that balances mm-hmm. the chaos because I'm going to be going forward. And that's where, Hockenberry, Mike Hockenberry was his name. Mike Hockenberry and I were so good together because, you know, it's the uh, innovator operator, you know, commentary they talk about. Like I fit in my bucket perfectly and he fit in his and we never, we never crossed. And because there was trust, you know, we could get things done and then we just hammer out the stuff that, you know, that we disagreed about. But man, the amount of money that gets left on the table (laughs) in this industry out of just sheer, I don't want to say stupidity because it's really ignorance and insecurity that is the biggest barrier to most of these companies making real real money is that they they rather than just do the work they want to make new stuff do new things and all that and it's like god it's so dumb it's really not that hard it's really not but it's because it's not hard people want to make it hard and then they screw up the easy part because now i can't come in and fix it i've had to turn down I mean, some great deals to help people because I didn't believe I could take the brand to transaction. I'm like, I don't have a, I don't have a story. I can't, I can't in good faith, look at somebody and tell them they need to buy this. I have to believe it. I can't, I can't do a fake, you know, dog and pony show. I don't need to do that. So if I don't believe in it, I'm not going to do it. You know, at this point. Too old for that shit. <laughs> Too old for that shit. Dude, you're I'm like hundred like years I, old. I disagree. I'm a hundred years old in the are, industry. You years. are, but I still think we are. <laughs> so you are so intelligent. I think you've gotten smarter, even though you had great ideas in the twenties. Obviously, I think you got one more awesome big go at it if you want, because you Maybe. still have the energy. You're not. You're not fifty three years old yet. Like I, no, no, I'm not. Dude. I feel like I am some days, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna the business I'm in now. So like you know, my my. The, the sun business thing, the auction business I'm in, I'm really enjoying that because it works with my ADD really well. Um, and I, I don't, with where I'm at with my life, my dad's 80 years old. And so like, I, you know, I'm super cognizant of that. So I would never do a deal that would compromise that for me right. as far as the time wise. And so I think where I end up, if I'm doing, if I do anything, it's going to be more in that consult board prep role for helping companies get the helping the right companies get paid because that's what I like seeing. I like seeing people that I believe that if they go to transaction and sell whatever they do after that is going to be good, meaning either good for people, good for, for charities or, you know, whatever else, like they're just going to do good. And if I believe that, then I'll go into a wall, you know, for somebody, but I got to have that. And if I can't do that, I can't do 50%. Like I just, I don't, I don't do that well. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have to regulate because otherwise, and that's probably the biggest mistake I made post salvation was I have money. I always used to joke. I never had enough money to do and decisions. I had to do or decisions so I could do this or I could do that Mm -hmm. from a marketing standpoint or whatever, whatever standpoint it was. And I never knew what the right answer was. But I guarantee you I would give that decision 100% so that if it didn't work, I actually learned that that decision was wrong as opposed to not maximum effort. I don't believe that I made the right decision a lot of times with things that I did. I honestly believe through sheer force that they ultimately sort of became a good decision. 
Um, but I see it countless times, people making decisions and they get to the end of it and they're like, well, we probably could have done this, this or this. But it's like, well, then you didn't learn anything. You don't actually know whether or not you made you know, the wrong decision. So you got to overcommit literally to whatever it is so that you actually know whether or not you screwed up. But I tried to do too much after after the 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 sale because I had assistance and I had all these people that were going to make my life more efficient. Uh, but ultimately you, you can't gain, but so much of like, you're still you and you only have so much capacity mm-hmm. and you know, there, the other people aren't you. And that's not meant as a, a slight, but you know, you start trying to do shit you're not good at. And then, then you're given like 20% to all these things. And mm-hmm. it took me a year to get involved into way too much and took me five years to unwind it. So that was a huge fuck up on my part. And I, that's one thing I try to counsel people on is how important the word no is, how real success guilt is. There's going to be people in your life that, you know, have been around you. They've been in your orbit and they see you get really successful. There can be resentment. Um, you, You want to start just doing things to sort of almost buy off your your success of like, I'm sorry, basically here, I'll support all your projects. It's tough, man. It's it, and in no way is it something people should have sympathy for, but it's just a real part of having a successful transaction is, you know, all that that comes with it afterwards. And there's not, unless somebody's been through it, man, you can't read a book about it or any of that. You just kind of, you, you just have to go through it. I like it. what you said and about it. Yeah. You may have posted on Facebook, but I was going to say like after the transaction, I'm sure a lot of people came out of the woodwork. Like, dude, I gave away in, so you got to remember, like I had all the equity, like I had bought Mark out. I had bought my uncle out other than what I gave to, you know, the, the corporate team and the, um, uh, the, the private equity group, I had all the equity. And so, you know, when it came time to do the deal, uh, you know, I ended up giving back almost 30% to the staff. So like, it was no way. That's it was big. Yeah, it was it was a lot. So I think in the end, I took about 60, 60 to 62 percent, somewhere around in there of the of the total. But my plan had always been, you know, to I think the lowest bonus I gave was somebody who had been there for like four or five months in the warehouse. And I gave him a year salary. Awesome. I think that was the lowest lowest amount that we did. Um, you, but yeah, there was. There was a lot of people because, I mean, like, man, these people are like, oh, I did this. I did that bullshit, man. Everybody around you did all this stuff. Um, and you'll never be able to repay them, you know, all back. And so, yeah, But you knew Nutribolt wasn't going to bring them on. So that was honestly the right thing to do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, we had, you know, you have, uh, depending on your position, there's people that transition for, you know, 180 days, 120 days, 90 days. Because obviously your logistics team at that point is the most important, plus your warehouse team, because we actually did not use a 3PL. We had all of our stuff in-house. Um, so that was the longest transition is just the distribution part. You know, that it's it, dude, it's a it's a massive handoff. But what was wild is we only had four counts between everything that they didn't have already, basically. So it was, it was the best deal for both. So I'm very proud of the fact that what they did growing the brand afterwards and like i feel like we got max value and they got a good deal and i don't know that those two things hardly ever align mm-hmm. but it was just the perfect storm right partner right time right price all that stuff so yeah it, it was a it was a really good deal and what i'm i'm super proud of having gone through it um although mike dimaggio might might tell you otherwise because we had some knockdown 
drag outs during that because my job was to come run in screaming when shit wasn't going right. So because I had the equity, most companies don't have that. There's like all these partners and stuff. So, you know, if something was impacted by a million dollars, that to me was literally a million dollars. So I would fight tooth and nail for it. And so I would just go, fuck this. <laughs> fuck you guys. I'm leaving. I don't need this. I don't care. And they knew it. They knew that I that I would walk away. They knew that I had that I had the power and I would. So there were like three or four times that that had to be invoked. Mike would literally call me up and be like, I need you to throw a, a panic to DiMaggio and tell him you're going to blow up the deal because I can't get anywhere. Okay. What the? <laughs> but deals are ruthless, man. They are. It's a, if you can ever be a part of one in some way, just to, even as an observer for it, which would be pretty wild actually for content. If you guys knew somebody was going through and document through one side of it, and that, you know, they would have rights to maybe after to so make sure obviously you don't give away anything too crazy. Showing what an owner goes through in those moments of the highs and the lows and then the moment afterwards of, you know, what just happened. You know, I didn't know, like, I, for, I didn't know what to do with the money. I didn't know, like, do, do I get like a publisher's clearinghouse check or like, how does this work? Like, do I can't do, is it just show up in my bank? Like, I didn't know anything. Wire, I just, right? I didn't know. Yeah, I think, like, I don't know. I, I honestly went to the guy that sold the Burt's Bees and, um, and the seventh generation. I said, what do I do? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And he goes, well, these are the people that handle my money. And I'm like, okay. So I called them up and I'm like, Hey, this guy says you handle his money. So can you handle mine? <laughs> I was like, I didn't know what to do. You know, there's just so many things that go on. You don't, you don't think about, but dude, it would be, that would be fucking wild. Do like a 10 part series of somebody going through a transaction, whether successful or not, everything from the capital raise, you know, on down or not the capital raise, but like the building of the book, the presenting of the book, and just what they're going through and then seeing what you could share afterwards, that would be, that would be wild. Cause dude, it's, it's, it's fucking brutal. So if you know anybody going through a transaction, that would be a fun one to, <laughs> to sit through. That would be some awesome content. content. If you want to go yeah, make business them check content, in, make them, it is right there. Yeah. Yeah. Make them check in once a week and just go, dude, just, just talk, you know, just tell us what's going on. Almost like a, a video diary. Um, dude, they probably create half the content for you. Dude, send me a video every Screaming. three days of 10 minutes of you talking about whatever the fuck's going just on. Just up and down roller coaster emotions, huh? Well, you never know what's, dude, you, no matter, you got to think about like selling a business is like running for political office at a high level where they're good. They have teams of people that their only job is to dig up shit. And you can imagine with my life, the things I have said on the internet, there was a lot of that. And luckily, they knew that going Forum's into it. Yeah, they didn't call me. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, that vegan asshole. <laughs> yeah, so like, I mean, they will dig through and you'll get torpedoed by it. You don't know. It just comes from like outer space and hits you. And you're like, I didn't even, you know, I didn't even think about that, you know. And so that's the stuff that that throws you off. And so you go from this high of the day we got the letter of intent from Nutribolt. I got another letter from a private equity group out of literally out of nowhere. And on the same day that never happens. And I had to call him up and go, dude, I super appreciate it. But like, I'm not interested because I have this other offer. That's a complete buyout, which is what I want. I want to be gone, done. Private equity would have me on for another five years. They raised their offer by almost double. It started approaching the numbers that I was going to be able to, 
within reason to take off the table similar-ish money, but I was going to be tied to it for five years. And I, I couldn't do it. I was going to, I think they were buying 70 or 75%. And so I would have maintained a 25% stake. And then I had to tell Nutrivolt that I have another letter of intent and they thought I was lying. And I'm like, this is not a leverage play. I'm like, I'm not asking you to adjust the offer. I'm just telling you. And so then you sign it. I was sitting there with Hockenberry in the office by ourselves at the top of this office building. And we're just sitting here looking at these two contracts, like what is going on? And so, you know, we finally signed the one from Nutribolt. And so you have this moment of there's this number. And if we do this over the next four months, we're going to make money. And so then you get to the last day and dude, I, we all cried. We were all sitting in a little conference room table. Nobody knew what was going on in there. Um, and we sat down and dude, that call comes in. There's 50 people on this phone call. Everybody's got to say yes to all the shit and all that stuff. And then you just hang up the phone and you're like, is that it? Like, do I, do I, is there, do I hand keys to somebody? Like what just happened? And Brian, my CFO, Mike and myself, for, I'm not kidding, cried for 10 minutes straight because just the emotional drain of going through that whole process. And then it, I mean, we were, we were negotiating the night before, like it was still going that late. And we finally just said, dude, if you don't answer the fucking phone tomorrow, I don't care. Like we were all, we were done, done. And uh, yeah, dude, it was the most emotionally, physically emotional, everything I've ever been through in my entire life. So, Nothing's ever come close. Wow. Okay. So- <laughs> Mike, this has been incredible. We're going to have to get you on. I'm sure there's going to be some feedback here, but uh, so mm. to close out, how do, I don't know if you want this or not, but how do people get a hold of you? I know you're prolific on Facebook. I'm not sure if that's more oh, of a personal yeah. thing. You've mentioned the dog on a, on, on like, what, I've, I've seen some yeah. of your posts on Twitter. I'm not sure. Like, yeah, where do you want, where do you want us to link to? Yeah. So probably for the business stuff, like obviously I'll follow comments inside of here to see how angry I've made uh, certain people. Um, but you know, they can reach me on LinkedIn under Mike McCandless and you'll know it's me because it'll be a dog as the picture, be a big Italian mastiff face. We'll link to it in the show and uh, you know, you can message me through there. I don't really check it that often. Uh, I am on Facebook because I'm old. So I, so I like to hang out over there and, uh, but yeah, I'll put it this way. Like for people who are actually interested and the things that I've said have resonated with, um, if you really want to find me, you can find me and, uh, you'll figure out how to get in touch with me. That'll keep, you know, hopefully, you know, too, too, too many things coming my way, but yeah, you know, I love to help people out. Been doing it a long time. I think I've got some things, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk to people and help out. I love doing the podcast. I'm happy to come back on and, you know, we can go deep on maybe individual topics. This was broad mm -hmm. and, you know, this was the shotgun. So now if you guys want to cover into something more specific, you know, I'm happy to come back and do that. Come back with a rifle. Cool. All right, Mike, <laughs> thank you once again. This has been incredible. Let's see when we can get this up.